1: From the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once, and we offer our listeners a perspective that you might have not heard the voices of indigenous peoples, and we appreciate the limited supply of human beings who will listen. And again, you can visit First Voices at Indigenous uh, for any commentary. Please leave an email, teokasan at gmail. And again, it's always a privilege to be here. I want to bring on our friend Robert Jensen, who is a author and a journalism professor at the University of Texas at Austin. No to Thanksgiving. By Robert Jensen. One indication of moral progress in the United States would be the replacement of Thanksgiving Day and its self indulgent family feasting with a National Day of Atonement accompanied by a self reflective collective fasting. In fact, indigenous peoples have offered such a model since nineteen seventy. They have marked the fourth Thursday of of November as a day of mourning in a spiritual political ceremony on Cold Hill overlooking Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. One of the early sites of the european invasions of the americas not only is the thought of such a change in this white supremacist holiday impossible to imagine but the very mention of the idea sends most americans into apoplectic fits which speaks volumes about american historical hypocrisy and its relation to the contemporary politics of empire in the united states that the world's great powers achieve greatness quote unquote through criminal brutality On a grand scale is not news, of course, that those same societies are reluctant to highlight this history of barbarism also is predictable. But in the United States, this reluctance to acknowledge America's original sin, the genocide of indigenous peoples, is of special importance today. It's now routine, even among conservative commentators, to describe the United States as an empire, so long as everyone understands we are an inherently benevolent one. History must be twisted And tortured to serve the purposes of the powerful. One vehicle for taming history is various patriotic holidays with Thanksgiving at the heart of US myth building. From an early age Americans hear a story about the hardy pilgrims whose search for freedom took them from England to Massachusetts. There aided by the friendly Wampanoag, they survived in a new and harsh environment leading to a harvest feast in 1621 following the pilgrims first winter. Some aspects of the conventional story are true enough, but it's also true that the 1637 Massachusetts Governor John Winthrop was proclaiming a thanksgiving for the successful massacre of hundreds of Pequot Indian men, women, and children, part of the long and bloody process of opening up additional land to the English invaders. The pattern would repeat itself across the continent until between 95 and 99 percent of American Indians had been exterminated and the rest left to assimilate into white society or die-off on reservations out of the view of polite society. Simply put, Thanksgiving is a day when the dominant white culture and, sadly, most of the rest of the non-white but non-indigenous population celebrates the beginning of a genocide that was, in fact, blessed by the men Americans hold up as their heroic founding fathers. The first president, George Washington, in 1783 said he preferred buying Indians land rather than driving them off. That was like driving wild beasts from the forest. He compared Indians to wolves being beasts of prey, though they differ in shape. Thomas Jefferson, President No. 3, an author of the Declaration of Independence, which refers to Indians as merciless Indian savages, was known to romanticize Indians and their culture. But that didn't stop him in 1807 from writing to his Secretary of War that in a coming conflict with certain tribes, quote, We shall destroy all of them, unquote. Theodore Roosevelt, President No. 26, defended the expansion of whites across the continent as an inevitable process due solely to the power of the mighty civilized races which have not lost the fighting instinct and which by their expansion are gradually bringing peace into the red wastes where the barbarian peoples of the world hold sway. Roosevelt also once said, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians but I believe nine out of ten are and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the Tenth. How does a country deal with the fact that some of its most revered historical figures had certain moral values and political views virtually identical to Nazis? Here's how respectable politicians, pundits, and professors play the game. When invoking a grand and glorious aspect of our past, then history is all-important, We are told how crucial it is for people to know history, and there is much hand-wringing about the younger generation's lack of knowledge about and respect for that history. In the United States, we hear constantly about the deep wisdom of the founding fathers, the adventurous spirit of the early explorers, the gritty determination of those who settled the country, and about how crucial it is for children to learn these things. But when one brings into historical discussions any facts and interpretations that contest the celebratory story and make people uncomfortable, such as the genocide of indigenous peoples as the foundational act in the creation of the United States, suddenly the value of history drops precipitously and one is asked, why do you insist on dwelling on the past? This is the mark of a well-disciplined intellectual class one that can extol the importance of knowing history for contemporary citizenship and at the same time argue that we shouldn't spend too much time thinking about history. This off-and-on engagement with history isn't of mere academic interest. As a dominant imperial power of the moment, U.S. elites have a clear stake in the contemporary propaganda value of that history, obscuring Bitter truths about historical crimes help perpetuate the fantasy of American benevolence, which makes it easier to sell contemporary imperial adventures, such as the invasion of other lands and occupations as another benevolent action. Any attempt to complicate the story guarantees hostility from mainstream culture. After raising the barbarism of America's most revered founding fathers in a lecture, I once was accused of trying to humble our proud nation and undermine young people's faith in our country. Yes, of course, that is exactly what I would hope to achieve. We should practice the virtue of humility and avoid the excess of pride that can, when combined with great power, lead to great abuses of power. History does matter, which is why people in power put so much energy into controlling it. The United States is hardly the only society that has created such mythology. While some historians in Great Britain continue to talk about the benefits that the empire brought to India, political movements in India want to make the mythology and into historical facts. Abuses of history go on in the former empire and former colony. History can be one of many ways we create and impose hierarchy or process liberation. The truth won't set us free, but the telling of truth at least opens the possibility of freedom. As Americans sit down on Thanksgiving Day to gorge themselves on the bounty of empire, many will worry about the expensive effects of overeating on their waistlines. We would be better to think about the constricting effects of the day's mythology on our minds. In Plymouth, I want to describe that rock which is split in half and sealed together with uh, cement glue. And this rock, uh, they had to, to roll down a hill to signify a marker for, to, for where the, these pilgrims landed. Now we go to Robert Jensen, who is with us from Austin, Texas. Uh, Robert, your, your views and commentary on this No Thanks to Thanksgiving and this introduction of a National Day of Atonement.
2: Well, you know, I think for, for many of us who would consider ourselves left, progressive, critical, and who are of European origins, Uh, We've always had a a somewhat um, tense relationship to Thanksgiving. I know I have. It probably started when I was a kid and realized there was something wrong with this holiday. And as I've gotten older, um, I've sort of given up on the idea that you can repackage Thanksgiving. A lot of people on the left say, well, uh, if you can just disconnect it from its origins as a a marker of the European invasion – and use it as a general day to give thanks without repeating the American mythology, then it's okay. But, but I became, you know, more and more unsatisfied with that explanation because a holiday, of course, is not something that's defined individually. It's a cultural event. And one person or one group of people can't simply say, well, I don't understand the holiday the way the culture does. When you participate in something that is a cultural, event like that, you are, you know, participating in the culture's definition of it. So, over the last few years, I've been writing and thinking and talking to people about what is an appropriate response to Thanksgiving. Uh, as you mentioned, there's been a, a movement since 1970 to mark it as a day of mourning, which is, of course, appropriate for indigenous people. But to me, that's not exactly the right tone for those of us who are white of European origins because we're not really mourning in the same way indigenous people are. It's more of a a question of atonement, of recognizing this fundamental uh, violation of human rights, uh, the European invasion of the Americas, probably the most extensive, at least in recorded human history, the most extensive campaign of genocide that we know. Uh, And that is, in fact, I think the appropriate way to understand it. And therefore, it seems to me, for those of us who are white, Atonement makes makes perfect sense. Uh, I don't expect that, you know, the new president is going to, uh, you know, issue an executive order rescinding Thanksgiving and, and marking it a national day of atonement. But I think we should start talking about it.
1: Yeah, this National Day of Atonement in uh, the conventional story is, is is there's not enough truth in that conventional story, and uh, um, I think we should start from uh, how the, the Wampanoags met the Native people, excuse me, the Pilgrims, and um, the the myth-building aspect. Again, let's start with the myth-building aspect. Uh, how it, it has come to what it is today for most Americans.
2: Well, I think there are two different levels of myths around Thanksgiving. One is uh, the question of what actually happened on that day, And people often say, well, they really didn't eat turkey and you know stuffing and, and pumpkin pie, which may all, of course, be true. It, that, that level of myth is a relatively harmless level. It's the deeper mythology in which this whole holiday is rooted, which is the, the notion that somehow the Europeans came in peace and that the initial engagements with indigenous people were somehow peaceful, and it, it creates this illusion in the, in the minds of many Americans that that the the fundamental act of, of a European invasion began in some other context. So that's the deeper level of mythology that has to be rejected. Of course, that's housed in an even bigger mythological construct about. Uh, the United States as uh, a a break with history, Uh, the so-called American exceptionalism, the the notion that the United States was founded as that shining city upon the hill, to quote an old preacher. Uh, All of that is part of this um, mythology about America as somehow a country where the world starts anew, and of course that is not the case, the history of the United States is much like the history of other great powers, it's a history of violence, conquest, coercion, the expropriation of land, and in this case, as we said, the most extensive genocide in recorded human history. Uh, and so it's that level of mythology that I think we have to to try and bust and Thanksgiving is one place where that mythology is simply recreated over and over again in schools, in homes, in media and throughout the culture.
1: The well-disciplined, the intellectual class, the affluent, the not the, the average everyday redneck, so to speak, knowing history, but yet denying that history and, and in, in the codifying it into the contemporary citizenship um, at the same time that they're arguing that that was then, this is today. And how much time do we need to spend uh, readjusting this holiday and that myth-building aspect?
2: Well, this is one thing where I see—I think you see the, the contradiction of the intellectual class. When history can be marshaled to support their view of the great American enterprise, then history is very important. We hear intellectuals all the time saying one of the problems with America, especially its youth, is that they don't know their history. Certainly you've heard that uh, older intellectual folks decrying the lack of historical knowledge on the part of young people. So history is very important. When that history can be used to buttress our sense of ourselves as this noble experiment in human history, but when history is inconvenient, when the actual historical record contradicts the contemporary understanding of America as an exceptional place, well, then what do we hear? We we hear well. Why are you paying so much attention to history? Why are you stuck in the past? And that tells you just how deeply ideological history is everywhere and how it's utilized in the United States in ideological fashion. So think of the conservatives, people like William Bennett, who was a prominent official in the Reagan administration. They're constantly talking about the need to teach history more. But the history they want to teach is this very, as we've been calling it, mythological version with the noble Thomas Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence, bringing to the world a new nation. It's not that 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 view of history has no reality to it. Certainly some of that is accurate, but that is the myth. Now, when you try to bring in a more well-rounded history that includes the crimes of the European invasion, well, then all of a sudden history becomes irrelevant. Uh, That's the hypocrisy that's common in the intellectual class. And after spending the last 20 years in the university system in the United States, I can tell you that hypocrisy is woven into the fabric of the institution at every level, from uh, what we teach in the classroom to how we structure the university curriculum uh, and to how we take that into public. Uh, it's really uh, one of the great scandals of American intellectual life, but one that's rarely discussed in In the dominant culture.
1: In that obscuring of of the truth, so to speak, there's this this, uh, thing that you describe as a benevolent action, and you talked a little bit about it. Uh, The attempts to complicate the story, but yet some of the comebacks from those intellectuals are, um, quote unquote, you are trying to undermine the young people's faith in our country. Will it actually do that if the truth about Thanksgiving is really told?
2: Well, I don't think it would undermine faith. First of all, you know, faith is an odd way to talk about a political institution, like a nation-state. Uh, one might have faith in theological notions, or those things that are beyond history or beyond uh, rational discussion. But faith is not an appropriate you know, construct to discuss politics. One should believe or not believe in political institutions. One should accept or not accept the claims of leaders based not on faith, but on reality. So I think, in fact, teaching a, a, a more complete history of the United States, especially the, the original sin of American history, this genocide we are speaking of, I think that would, uh, it might undermine a, a naive faith in institutions, but that would produce a healthier democracy. Democracy is enhanced and deepened when people can see the truth and make decisions based on that truth. So this notion that, that You know, we don't want to undermine children's faith in the country, I think is based on a a profound misunderstanding of the nature of democracy. And beyond that, I think we should recognize it's based on a fear, the fear that if the truth were told, that the institutions of America would be shaken. And indeed they would, and that would be a good thing. You know, I think this is a, a lesson applicable across the board, uh, to all of the institutions, whether they are political, cultural, theological, uh, we should have the, the strength, the moral and the intellectual strength to face the truth. And I think as we reach this point in human history where the economic crises, the political crises, and, of course, most profoundly, the ecological crises, really have become dramatic to the point where where we have to talk about whether or not the ecosystem can you know support life as we know it into the future, I think being able to come to truth or t- come to terms with that kind of truth is incredibly important
1: and we are talking with Robert Jensen, who is professor and author at the University of Texas at Austin and author is uh, of the book one of the books is Heart of Whiteness: uh, The Heart of Whiteness: Confronting Race, Racism, and white privilege and uh, Why is that? To me, when I mention the word, the R word, as you know what it is, uh, people tend to cringe because this attempt to, to tell a story, um, and you were leading to where my next question was going, the history of this country would not only put it morally, uh, correct, not just politically correct, but morally correct, and then we can maybe pick up some more perspective and ideas from indigenous peoples of exactly how to live with Earth with the coming ecological crisis happening.
2: Well, I think that's important for the very profound reason you just said, that European society, in fact industrial society in general, is profoundly out of balance and unsustainable. And uh, we need to start to understand what that means. And there have been other ways of living, of course, other societies, other cultures that have lived in much closer balance with the non-human world, with nature. Uh, some of those societies were the indigenous societies here prior to the, to the European invasion. And we should look at that. Now, the problem is right now the culture kind of cherry-picks from indigenous history, uh, lessons that, that, you know, might seem to lead us that way. Uh, for instance, you know, there are lots of, especially liberals, who will talk about, you know, indigenous societies and how they, they were in harmony. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the problem of looking to indigenous societies and, and valuing them. That's a good thing. But it's also then recognizing what is out of balance in our societies. And what is out of balance is the predatory nature of European societies. For the last 500 years, Europe has essentially engaged in a predatory relationship with not only other societies, that colonial mentality that led to the crimes we're talking about, but a predatory relationship with the earth itself. And we are seeing the consequences of that. So to me, it's not only about lifting up, valuing, and honoring indigenous traditions, it's also using that to reflect back on the problem of the traditions we take from Europe. Uh, Those are traditions that are embedded in the industrial world, in the capitalist world, and in the world of a a hyper-nationalistic, imperialist nation-state. Well, those are much more important for white America to come to terms with, because we have to dismantle. It's It's not just you know looking back in in a romantic fashion Mm -hmm. to societies that might have been more sustainable it's about using those insights to dismantle those aspects of our society that are profoundly unsustainable and at the core of that is this predatory relationship which is extremely violent and extremely extractive and manipulative Uh, now to turn our backs on that to, to choose a new course Means radically restructuring the way we live, and that's what the dominant culture in the United States has to come to terms with. If we don't come to terms with that, I think literally there is no future to imagine beyond a few decades. I think we are at that crisis point in human history.
1: I probably repeating the question, Robert Jensen, but um, what is this? What is it about Thanksgiving that is? Why is that story so seductive, Robert?
2: Well, I think it's not only the story itself, but it's the traditions that have now brought uh, arisen around the story. I think there are many people for instance in the United States who don't necessarily accept the the mythological rendering of Thanksgiving, but they do enjoy a, a day off of work where people suspend their normal routines and come together with friends and family for for community. In a world where we're so isolated and so fragmented by the dominant culture, those days are really quite precious. So I think it's not only the story itself, it's just the, the relief from the regular routine that Thanksgiving promises that is mm-hmm. attractive. You know, I certainly have had many people, left progressive people, who say, I don't dispute the analysis you're, you're offering about the mythological nature of Thanksgiving. It's simply that this is one of the few times when we can gather like this, and hence this attempt to kind of reframe and reformulate Thanksgiving. For others, of course, more nationalistic, more hyper-patriotic, more committed to white supremacy, Thanksgiving is a chance to, to retell the myth in a way that is extremely, uh, I think, uh, comforting. Uh, and the reason is, I think, quite obvious, is that everybody who's in a position of unearned power and privilege by virtue of being white, middle class, living in the United States. In other words, knowing that the affluence with which so many of us live is unearned and that, in fact, others have suffered because of that affluence. Well, it's very attractive to want to tell a story that legitimates all of that. And I think for those who who grab on hard to the Thanksgiving mythology, it's, in a sense, a, a way to keep from engaging with the reality that we all at some level kind of know that this this country and as the wealthiest and most powerful country in the history of the world uh, we realize that wealth and power is built on exploitation and violence not simply on the hard work of of its people.
1: Robert Jensen is a professor in the School of Journalism and director of the Senior Fellows Honors Program of the College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. hearing is in 1980 John Trudell 1980 he was saying these things
0: stay tuned I'd like to uh, thank all of you for coming here tonight and sharing this evening with us and tonight I'd like to talk in honor of in honor of the water and the earth and our brother Leonard Peltier we're faced with a very serious situation in this generation there are insane people who wish to rule the world. They wish to continue to rule the world on violence and repression. and We are all the victims of that violence and repression. We as the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere have been resisting this violence and this oppression for 500 years. We know that the black people have been resisting it for at least that long. And we know that the white people have had to endure it thousands of years. And now it's come full swing to this generation that we live in nuclearization of the world. You see, this cannot be... We cannot allow this to continue to go on. We cannot do it. You see, we cannot expect that the pro-nuclear oppressor, that other side, we cannot expect that they're going to change for us. They are going to become more brutal. They are going to become more repressive because it's a matter of dollars and their illusionary concepts of power. We have to reestablish our identity, we have to understand who we are and where we fit in the natural order of the world, because our oppressor deals in illusions. They tell us that it is power, but it is not power. They may have all the guns, and they may have all the racist laws and judges, and they may control all the money, but that is not power. These are imitations of power, and they are only power because in our minds we allow it to be power. But it's all an imitation. <laughs> racism and violence, racism and guns, economics, the brutality of the American corporate state way of life is nothing more than violence and repression, and it has nothing to do with power. It is brutality. It is a lack of a sane, it's, it's, it's a lack of a sane balance. The people who have created this system and they perpetuate this system, they are out of balance. They have made us out of balance. They have come into our minds, and they've come into our hearts, and they've programmed us because we live in this society, and they've put us out of balance. And because we are out of balance, we no longer have the power to deal with them. They have conquered us as a natural power. See, we are power. They deal in violence and repression. We are power. We are a part of the natural world. All of the things of the natural world are a natural part of the creation and feed off the energy of our sacred Mother Earth. We are power, but they have separated us from our spiritual connection to the earth. So people feel powerless. We look at the oppressor and we look at the enemy because they have the most guns and the most lies and the most money. People start to feel powerless. We are power. We are a natural part of the creation. We were put here on the sacred mother earth to serve a purpose. And somewhere in the history of people, we're forgetting what the purpose is. The purpose is to honor the earth. The purpose is to protect the earth. The purpose is to live in balance with the earth. The earth is our mother. And we will never free ourselves as human people. We will never free ourselves as sexual people. We will never free ourselves until we address the issue of how we live in balance with the earth. Because all of our resistance and all of our struggle is hollow. It's false. It's another one of those oppressor's hypocrisies. If we do not look out for the welfare of the earth first, because I do not care who it is, any child that turns on their mother is living in a terrible, terrible confusion. The earth is our mother. We must take care of the earth. They pollute. This oppressor, this machine, this machine that has gone mad and run amok, it is berserk. They keep telling us, you know, progress. They keep telling us, face reality. Well, let's deal with reality reality is the earth can no longer take this attack. We cannot, we can no longer allow this thing to continue where it's polluting the air, it's polluting the water, polluting our food. They pollute the air, they pollute the water, they pollute our food, they pollute our minds. They put us out of balance. They have made us be insecure with ourselves. They have put us into a situation where we have to play many roles. We got, you know, we got to be chauvinist or we got to be some, on some kind of a class trip or some kind of an illusionary power trip. We got to play a role, see, we got to play a role to communicate with other people. We got to go through this charade because they have attacked our self-confidence. They have attacked our self-confidence and they have made us to listen to them. They have made us to believe that they are power, but they are not. They are violent and they are brutal, but they are not power. We are a natural part of the earth. As a natural part of the earth, we have the energy and the power that is the earth. The earth will take care of us if we will remember the earth in more than just our words. If we will remember the earth in our way of life, we are all here to play a role, and all of the animals and all of the life on the earth is playing its proper role except the human people. Somehow we are... We are betraying. We are betraying our purpose here, and that is why we live in the confusion that we live in. They tell us, they want us to believe that we are powerless. We are a natural part of the earth. We are an extension of that natural energy, that natural energy which is spirit and which is power. Power. A blizzard is power. An earthquake is power. A tornado is power. These are all things of power that no oppressor, no machine age can put these things of power in a prison. No machine age can make these things of power submit to the machine age. That is natural power. And just as it takes millions and billions of elements to make a blizzard to happen or to make the earthquake, to make the earth to move, then it's going to take millions and billions of us. We are power. We have that power. We have the potential for that power. I remember in the 60s and the 70s, and I heard all this thing about power to the people, and I never really understood because everyone was saying power to the people, and they were talking about demonstrator. They were talking about vote. They were talking about dealing on the terms of the oppressor. Our power will come back to us. Our sense of balance will come back to us when we go back to the natural way of protecting and honoring the earth. If we have forgotten how to do it and if we think that it looks overwhelming and we can never accomplish it, then all we have to do in each of us as an individual can go out and we can find some spot on the earth that we could relate to, feel that energy, feel that power. That's where our safety will come. The earth will take care of us. We have to understand that the American corporate state will not take care of us. They do not care about us. Maximize their profit. That is where their whole life value is placed upon maximize the profit. They will turn us against each other to maximize the profit because they have done it in the past. Nuclear energy, it's the final assault. Nuclear energy should tell each and every one of us that they have gone beyond the reasons of sanity, that they are no longer sane, that they no longer deal with the real natural world because they want to create a radioactivity All right, that is going to make it impossible for the Mother Earth to take care of our life. We will not destroy the world. We are arrogant and we are stupid and we are foolish if we believe that we will destroy the world. Man has the ability to destroy all of the people's ability to live on the Earth. But we do not have the power to destroy the Earth. The Earth will heal itself. The Earth will purify itself of us. If it takes a billion years to get rid of the radiation, the earth will do it because the earth has that kind of a time. We do not. Our obligations and our loyalties have to be to the earth, and they have to be to our sense of community and to our people and to our relations. Our obligations and our loyalty should not be to a government that will not take care of our needs. Our obligations and loyalty should not be to a government that has proven time and time again that it is the enemy of the people unless the people are rich in dollars. That has been the consistent history of Western civilization and the American corporate state government. That's reality. They are not our friends. They do not care for us. We have to face that reality that we have an enemy. We want to talk about nuclear war. Everybody's afraid of nuclear war that's going to come between the Americans and the Russians and the Chinese or whoever. But are they not waging nuclear war on us now when the miners die from cancer from mining that uranium? Are they not waging nuclear war with Three Mile Island? When they release that stuff into the air? Are they not waging nuclear war when they build all of these nuclear reactors and it's not safe? Are they not waging nuclear war when they attack the Indian people on their land, militarily attack the Indian people, and racistly attack the Indian people so that they can get at the natural resources to feed their radioactive machine? That is war. And they are waging it against us. They bribe Congress, they bribe your elected officials. They terrorize and intimidate your elected officials by getting the FBI to blackmail them. Those are acts of war. We will have to come to a time in our lifetime and it will come in our lifetime when we are going to have to deal with the fact that the enemy has taken over your government. The government is not your ally. The government will use you, chew you up and spit you out You think that we are wrong? You think that we are talking unrealistically? Then go look at your elders and see what has happened to your elders in your machine-age society. See what kind of respect that they get. See what kind of a voice they are allowed into your society, what kind of input they have. See what their final reward of happiness is after working for this slave state for 30 or 40 years and allowing someone else to exploit their, their labors. What is racism? Racism is an act of war. Sexism is an act of war. It's a war against our human dignity and our rights to self respect. This is the war that they wage there. War. They are warlike. And we have to understand that Ameri- the American corporate state got to where it's at through the act of war. The next war, you want to worry, you want to think about a war? The next war that you better be concerned about is the one that they're going to fight here. Here in the continental United States, they have fought many wars here. They fought us all along, see, because we said it's ours and you haven't got a right to it, and they fought us. Now, you all are claiming that it's yours under this illusionary concept of private ownership of property, and they're going to fight you. But they're going to call it national security and energy crisis. They're going to call it constitutional rights, and they're going to call it judicial proceedings. They're going to nationalize, you know, your military coup is going to come by, they're going to nationalize the police departments. That's your military coup in the name of violence, rising crime. But all we must do is look in the corporate office and see the rising crime that is taking place there and nobody's going to jail for. So we got to understand that they are arming themselves to wage a war against us. And it's going to be called the, the War of Law and Order because they're twisting it around. For 500 years, my people have resisted. For 500 years, we will resist again if it becomes necessary. We want to be able to relate and communicate with all of the people that are living on this land. But we want to be able to relate and communicate from a position of truth. You all got to face the truth. We have had to face it through 500 years of genocide. We have had to face the truth. We have had to live the truth. We have had to die the truth before we're going to ever see our evolutionary liberation. The people that call themselves Americans are going to have to face the truth also. They tell us to be realistic, that progress means all these things have to happen. They tell us that we can't go back to the old way. They tell us, be realistic. But there is no old way, no new way. There is a way of life. We must live in balance with the earth. We must do it. We have no choice. If we allow ourselves to to be apathetic or we allow ourselves to be lied to or tolerate their lies about what they are doing to the earth, then we are betraying our intention. We are betraying our purpose here. We cannot protect that seventh generation if we do not protect the earth. We cannot protect ourselves if we do not protect the earth. The earth gives us life, not the American government. The earth gives us life, not the multinational corporate government. The earth gives us life. We need to have the earth. We must have it. Otherwise, our life will be no more. So we must resist what they do. They want to break our spirit. They will do everything and anything to break our spirit, our will to live. We must learn to resist. We must learn to see. We must learn to look. We must learn to step out of this reactionaryism. All of our lives, they've had control of us through their schools and through their TV, their electronic media. They've had control of us all of our lives. They have programmed us. They have made us become reactionary. We don't think we react to what they do. We don't think we react to everything that they do. We react to it. They're setting us up in the 80s because they know consistently throughout the past the people have always reacted to what they have, to their manipulations of circumstance. They know that the people always react. They're counting on it in the 80s. See, and they outnumber us with guns. They outnumber us with money. They outnumber us with votes. They control all the machines that count the votes. (laughs) They got it all stacked in their favor, except there's a key. (laughs) The key is we must start thinking and stop reacting. They have, the oppressor has no thinkers. They have no philosophers. It's all scientific. It's all economic. It's all manipulative. They have no thinkers. You go look and you deal with the enemy and what the enemy does is you, the enemy will send somebody out on the street to hit you in the head and the guy says, I'm only taking my orders. And if, you're, if you can come from a position of strength to this guy that's hitting you in the head and say, hey, you've got to stop hitting me in the head, we want to talk, then he says, well, I have to go to my superior to see. They have no thinkers either. If we will start to think and we will learn to see, To see what reality really is, we will outnumber them through the thinking process. We will take our minds away from them. Because through their manipulation of our mind, they control our spirit. And they know this is true. They tell us, see, they want us to believe that we are powerless. They want us to believe that we are becoming overwhelmed, that they can overwhelm us. You see, but they are paranoid. They are more paranoid than any of us are, no matter what happens to us because, see, they have to put people in here to come and listen to what we're saying so they can go back and tell. So they're afraid. They're afraid because they know we're talking about reality. Now why are they afraid? They are afraid because they know that they are dealing with the illusions of power which are based on the realities of violence and brutality. They're afraid. See, they don't want people to think. They don't want people to be talking and they don't want people to think about what they talk about because they know. They've known it all along that they built their whole thing on illusions. And because they have drawn us into giving this illusionary world all this power, they have taken our power away from us because we believe in the illusions. It's going to be real hard for us to get our way back. We have to deal with the economics. We have to deal with the politics. We have to deal with the whole nuclear madness. But we're going to have to purify and cleanse our spirit a little bit, our resistance. Movements. We have to think real seriously about movements. See, movements make up a resistance. We have to be very careful as how we organize because they're counting on us to react the same way we did in the 60s and the 70s. You think that this energy crisis and you think that this economic inflation thing, you think it's an accident? You think it just happened? They saw in the 60s that the American people were becoming more liberal because they were becoming more affluent. And because they were becoming more affluent, they were starting to say, well, equal rights for the blacks. The young people were starting to say, well, it doesn't matter what you look like, we all have a worth. And then that led up to where everybody started saying, the war in Vietnam is wrong. The other side, They saw that all of these conclusions were based on a level of affluency that was reaching the average American, and the average American was becoming more liberalistic in their thinking because they were getting this affluency. So they're getting even. They've had a redistribution of the wealth. They did it through energy, through oil, to make the people more poor. They did it. That's what Watergate was all about. While everybody was looking at Richard Nixon and did he or didn't he, They had a redistribution of the wealth and the price of gasoline and bread went up 100 percent. See, now if you didn't have Nixon to look at and be concerned about, then maybe you all would not have allowed them to raise these prices. See, but by the time that they got the prices raised by 100 percent, it was too late for the American people to ever recover and deal with it. They're getting even for the 60s and the 70s. Count on it. It's not an accident. You've got a racist class, sexist, ruling class power structure that exists in the world and it's composed of heavy industrialists, the people who are, who are part machine. And they intend that they're going to keep their hold on the world economics. We live in, an, in a machine world, an industrialized world. We got to deal with race. Two-thirds of the world's natural resources are on non-white land because that's where two-thirds of the world population is. One-third of the world's resources, because of technology coming out of the white land, one-third of the world's resources are almost totally used up. But technology spreads like any disease. Technology spreads, so there's two-thirds, there's two-thirds with the majority of the world's population. They got all the natural resources, so at some point in the immediate future, they're going to have all the technology which makes them the new machine power. And it changes the whole thing around, like they did to us when they wanted our land in the Dakotas. They used their technology to stay ahead. They came and they gave us a few Winchester repeating rifles because they had Gatling guns. And then they could justify their murder, see, because America, the hypocrisy is they must arm you before they murder you. So that was how they went about it. We look at today and now, by creating a dependency on nuclear power, nuclear energy, by creating a dependency upon that, there's only a handful of countries that control the the mechanism of mass production of this. All the countries in the world don't. And you watch where the nuclear bombs are going. They're going to places like Africa and the Middle East. And they're going to give some of these people some bombs in the hopes and they'll even have some of these people drop one of these atom bombs on each other one of these days. See, they can afford to hand the bombs out there because these nations have no capability of delivering the bomb back to where it came from, be it the Soviet Union or America. They create a dependency on nuclear energy then everybody has to adjust their needs and we stay dependent. And then through the end of it, before it's done, they intend to use their nuclear energy to be able to step into the net, into the third world and take the natural resources. It's all got to do with economics and racist power trips that have been in existence since before Christ. There's no need for it because of electricity, you know, for us to survive and resist. We are going to have to understand and recognize that we are energy because we are a natural part of the creation. And if we are going to effectively stand up to our enemy, we're going to have to be able to do it based upon our connection to the real truth, to reality. Our enemy is abusing, is abusing the earth. Our enemy abuses us, abuses all of the sacred things of life. But we are an extension of the earth. We are energy and we are spirit. Before we will be strong enough to fight and stand up to the enemy, we are going to have to evaluate How we use our own energy are we misusing our own energy are we misusing ourselves because we got to deal with that before we can deal with being misused by someone else alternative energy we are alternative energy we are it we have power we must gear ourselves for a long struggle we must never give up hope we must never turn our back on it and say we're not going to make it. Because those who turn their back and say, we're not going to make it, then they're not going to. That's it for them. But the spirit of the people, the spirit of the people, the spirit of the earth. We live in a natural world. We go, through, we go through lives. All of our ancestors who were here before us, all of our relations who were here with us and went into the spirit world. See, they didn't go to heaven or hell. They're here. They are spirit power. We connect with them. They will help us. They will help us to survive this thing, this madness that is coming, this machine madness that is being imposed upon all of us. What we must do is we must seriously think and consider our situation today as human beings. Because we're talking about sexism and ageism and racism and classism. We're talking about a nuclear attack against the earth. We're talking about a lot of things. They want to confuse us with nuclear bombs. They want to confuse us with the draft. They want to confuse us with the whole economics. But we must put, take a little bit of time every day anyway and put some of that confusion to the side and think about who we are in relationship to the earth. The earth has the ability to heal and the earth has the ability to help us. The earth is power. We're looking to the wrong source for our power. And the more we look to the wrong source, the more powerless we become. And they will attack. You take that flower power movement that was in the middle 60s. These were young white people coming out of middle America. And these were the ones that were saying it doesn't matter what you look like or how you dress or how much money you make. And they became a threat to America. So America attacked them. America attacked them with LSD and speed and heroin and drugs. America took them and discredited them and said, They're no longer flower power children who come from your middle class homes. They are drug addicts and they had a generation gap. See, but everybody was so caught up in mind expansionism and idealism, they said, well, the LSD is a good thing for us and we really want it because it helps us to grow and see. But I consider it to be an act of war. The CIA was experimenting with LSD for specifically for that purpose, to use it in chemical warfare. And they saw a whole segment of the American public was turning, turning into a, a consciousness that talked about true human life values. So they dropped their LSD bomb. You see, because mind expansion and consciousness alteration was taking place. That's what the civil rights movement was. That's what the flower power movement was. That's what the anti-war movement was. There was people whose minds and their consciousness was expanding and starting to become more realistic. So they turned around and they dropped a few things on us to divert our energy. So we have we have to be very careful. We must always think. We must always look to see, because there's an answer for everything that is going on if we're willing to take the time to look for it and to see it. We are power. We are energy. We are spirit. We are the people. We want to be free. We want our liberation. Then we must take the responsibility that goes with liberation and freedom, and that responsibility is is to be able to take the time to analyze and to think and to feel things out to their logical conclusion. Feel, Stay with these things to the end, to the good conclusion. We cannot come and get involved in this for a year or two years. We must pick our way of life and we must live to it. And no matter how hard anybody here thinks that it is, if you think about all of our relatives that are locked up in prison cells. Think about how hard it is for them. But they're strong enough to endure. Well, we're out here. We should be strong enough to endure also. Think about all the women and children and men, the people that have had to endure centuries and centuries of oppression, strong enough to endure. We must do that. We must find a way to communicate with each other. We must find a way to have a more open human compassion. We must go back to the ways of the earth. It's the only way we're going to protect the unborn. We must never quit. We must be resistance. We must build a resistance that passes on the information and the knowledge of our mistakes to the next generation. We must not become too movement-oriented where we get caught up in our own arrogance because we're chasing a cause. We must build our power. And we must understand that we build strong. We must build to survive. Not to change the politics right now, we must build to survive. Because pretty soon, pretty soon a lot of these conversations will not, they will not allow them to take place anymore. Pretty soon we're going to have to be looking at each other in a way where we're either, where we're allies. There's going to come a time in our lifetime and many of us will see it. There's going to come a time where we're going to have to run to each other for safety. That time is coming. And anyone who refuses to believe it, anyone who still believes the American lie, that it can't happen here, then you have our sympathy. And we do not mean to offend you. Stay with us as long as you can, and when you see it start to happen, then you make your decision. Because Reagan, (laughs) Reagan's not your enemy. (laughs) Reagan's just, he's an actor. (laughs) He's saying the words that somebody is putting into his hands to say. He's reading his script, and they got this thing well planned. And they intend that they're going to break the backbone of resistance in America. And they're going to do it under their so-called energy crisis. I don't know what the answers are or the solutions, but we know that let's pray every day. We could pray. We could pray to the earth and we could pray to the ways that we believe and pray for some kind of understanding and take a little bit of time to get to know ourselves and be comfortable with ourselves. Take a little time, see, because the enemy has come into us. The enemy has the enemy is inside of us. The enemy exploits our ego. Exploits our needs and our wants. You know, there are things in this world that we need to have to survive and There are things in this world that we want because we want them We are going to have to relearn the difference. We're going to have to learn to take what we need Even if it means giving up some of the excess that we want and We cannot give too much to a way of life. I thank you for your time.
1: And again, you can visit First Voices at IndigenousRadio.org uh, for any commentary. Please leave an email at gmail. And again, it's always a privilege to be here.
0: Little daughter, you are so small for a big woman, so soft for someone who must be so strong. Little daughter, I hold you in my arms. I laugh and am happy at your baby girl smile. To say I feel good is not enough. Little daughter, I walk with you through the dimension called time. For what are minutes, days, or years compared to father, daughter, places, in eternity? Little daughter, you the delicate infant child carry the innocent reality. I pray for your protection, prayers to help you through this life experience. Little daughter, the times I hold you next to me, I am flowing an infinity of love to fill the times I cannot hold you next to me. Little daughter, I am always with you, even when you cannot see me there. Sister, sister, I want to talk to the woman in you. We're under siege in a troubled time. Sister, sister, won't you hear my voice? I'm your brother, but I've made the mistakes of a man. Sometimes it's lonely being a man. The programming has its effect. Isolation is such a cruel thing. Sister, sister, won't you understand? They took your brothers, turned them into men. Like they took...